Jabin, a king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 iron chariots and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kedesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men from Naphtali and Zebulun and lead the way to Mount Tabor. I will lure Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, If you'll go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Very well, Deborah said, I'll go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honour won't be yours for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kedesh, where he summoned Zebulun and Naphtali. Ten thousand men followed him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'ananim near Kedesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera gathered together his 900 iron chariots and all the men with him from Harasheth Hagoim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor, followed by 10,000 men. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera abandoned his chariot and fled on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoim, and all the troops of Sisera fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, however, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite because there were friendly relations between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the clan of, of Heba the Kenite. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she put a covering over him. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. She opened a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is someone here, say no. But Jael, Heber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I'll show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple, dead. On that day God subdued Jabin, the Canaanite king, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, the Canaanite king, until they destroyed him. This is the word of the Lord. We need to pray. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and uh, we thank you for the opportunity we've had over a number of weeks to, to go through this book of Judges with some uh, fairly odd and uh, confronting stories. But we thank you that in all these things you've had things to teach us, things to confront us with. And we pray that by your spirit you might do that work in us again. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, John, for reading that. Very well done. Another week in the book of Judges, another interesting, challenging passage. I told you Judges wouldn't be boring, didn't I? <clears throat> Disconcerting sometimes, discomforting often, but not boring. Uh, it's communion this morning, so I'm going to jump straight into things. No um, very clever introduction to draw us in. We don't need to be drawn in, do we? We've had tent pegs already. So we'll get straight into, into things in the book of Judges. If you've been here for previous talks in this series, you will already see familiar things happening again and again. Repeated themes and patterns emerging. For instance, last week we saw the importance of crying out to the Lord. Again, here at the beginning of uh, chapter 4, the Israelites cry out to the Lord. Uh, last week we looked at the way that in the book of Judges God often provides unusual saviours who use an unexpected method of salvation. Yep, here it is again. Uh, <clears throat> there's also this, this kind of confusion as to what lessons should we take from these stories. They're so odd to our ears, so different from our normal lives. What is it that we should be learning from this? Uh, same questions are here today, aren't they? Always keep a tent peg handy. Is that what we're supposed to learn? Don't go camping with certain people. Is that what, There's a lot to reflect on. We've got to remember the big picture. We've got to keep in mind the situation that we're in. Remember the setting of this book of Judges is the Israelites have just come into the promised land. They've settled in the promised land, but they disobeyed God. God had told them to get rid of all the evil different people groups that were living there, to get rid of them, but the Israelites didn't. They got rid of some, but not all. They partially obeyed, but as we saw on week one, partial obedience is disobedience. And so they're living in the promised land, but they've got all these different evil people groups living around them. The Moabites, the Philistines, the Jebusites, the Amalekites, the Canaanites are all around them. And they cause the Israelites living in the promised land problems. They, they present a physical danger and they present a spiritual danger. A physical danger because certain groups keep rising up and overpowering the Israelites and enslaving them. So there's a physical danger. But a spiritual danger, which is the more important one, because the Israelites keep living amongst the world, these people groups, and starting to live like them. They take on the same morals, the same standards. They take on the same way of living, the same priorities in life. And the way the scriptures tell us that what they actually do is they start turning their back on God and worshipping the gods of the people around them. And then suddenly this book of Judges is not so strange. It's very similar for the people of God living today who live in a world surrounded by a world's way of thinking. And it's very easy for the culture or the world around us to start telling us what our standards or morals or priorities or things should be or, or for us to start worshipping their gods. That's what's going on here. Now our passage today is actually two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, John just read chapter 4. But the PowerPoint's got both, and we will occasionally dip into chapter 5. I'll tell you when we're going to do that, Alex, if that's all right. Uh, they're, they're, very, they're very closely linked, because chapter 4 is the story that we heard. Chapter 5 is the musical account. Uh, if you can just put up chapter 5 for a moment, Alex, have a look at verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1 starts, 
On that day, Deborah and Barak, son of Abinoam, sang this song. And the rest of chapter 5 is the song of chapter 4. It's going through the same events, the same incidents, but it's a sung uh, version of it. So chapter 4 is the, um, the narrative, perspective, from narrative perspective of an historian. Chapter 5 is the musical expression, the, the perspective of a poet. That's what's going on here. But chapter 5 sometimes fills in some of the gaps for us of chapter 4, and that's what we'll, we'll, we'll occasionally look at chapter 5 just to fill in some of the gaps we need for chapter 4. So back to chapter 4 if you can, Alex. So there's a lot to cover, two chapters today. We're going to spend all our time in the passage just looking at it, because we're going to come across some things where we need to pause, stop, and have a think about it. I've got no points this morning. So if you're waiting for me to finish the narrative and then get to the points, there is no point to this sermon. I should probably rephrase that. I will finish with three questions for us to consider. Three questions for us to be challenged by. But we're going to spend most of our time just going through the passage, trying to work out what's going on and why in this tricky passage. And again, I'm sorry we'll be rushing that in some ways. So we pick it up in chapter 4, verse 1, and here's another repeated thing. We see immediately the Israelites are again doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Ehud, the previous judge, has died, and that's part of the pattern that keeps happening again and again. When the judge dies, Israel goes back to being evil. And as a result, verse 3, the Israelites are cruelly oppressed for 20 years. Now remember last week, if you were here, I, I got people to stop to think about how long that time frame is. Last week it was 18 years. I got everyone who was 18 or younger to put their hand up. It's all of your lifetime. That's how long this cruel oppression has gone on. Even longer this week, 20 years, cruel oppression on the Israelites. That's more than a generation's worth. That's awful. But as awful as that is, think how sad it is, it takes the Israelites 20 years to cry out to the Lord. Isn't that a tragedy? And yet it's very realistic that. Very realistic. There are people in the world today who won't cry out to the Lord even though they know they need him, even though they know their life is a mess and they need something. They won't fully cry out to the Lord, either because, like Israel, they're so far away from the Lord they don't think so, they they don't think about doing it, or perhaps because they think they're so far, far from the Lord they can't. They can One of the wonderful things we're seeing in the book of Judges is if you cry out to the Lord, he will answer you. He will listen. But it takes the Israelites 20 years to do it here. Don't be like the Israelites. If you need to cry out to the Lord, do it immediately. Now, the particular people group that are oppressing the Israelites for these 20 years, we see in verse 2, there's a Canaanite group under King Jabin. But it's his number two, his commander Sisera, who's going to be the focus of the passage. So it's a Canaanite group, Jabin's the king, but it's Sisera, the number two, who's going to be the focus. Now these guys, what makes them a particularly difficult enemy is they've got 900 iron chariots. Now don't look this up, Alex, but in chapter 5, in the song, when Barak and Deborah sing of this period in life, the Israelites say they've got hardly any shields and hardly any spears. Well, the other guys have got 900 iron chariots. This is a mismatch. This is not a battle to take on. That's part of the problem. So they're outmatched big time as this 20 years uh, uh, is up. Well, back to chapter 4, and it's here at this point we meet Deborah. Now look how she's described in verse 4. Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of of Lapidoth, we all know Lapidoth, the wife of Lapidoth was leading Israel at the time. 
She held court, then it talks about where she holds court, dot, 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 and the Israelites came to her to have their disputes decided. Now, Deborah's so important in this passage, we've got to pause and think about it. And Deborah's taken on a kind of position in Christianity when we talk about gender roles and men and women uh, that's so important, we need to think a little bit about that. We can't get sucked into it too much because I think it's irrelevant in some ways to where we are in Judges, but we do need to think about it. So two questions I've got for us as we think about Deborah and the way she's portrayed here in Judges uh, this morning. Firstly, is the fact that she's a woman important here? Secondly, is she the judge of this passage? The judge, you know, as in one of the 12 judges. Firstly then, is the fact that she's a woman here in the book of Judges important? I would say absolutely yes. I think it's crucial. That's the way she's described here. She's described here as a prophetess. She's described here as a wife. She's described in chapter 5, verse 7, don't worry about looking it up, Alex, uh, as a mother. Her gender is highlighted a number of times here in this book. We're supposed to see this woman as a godly woman. And she's portrayed brilliantly. Her conduct, her service, the leadership she provides is exemplary in these two chapters. Uh, she's here. Barak, who's going to be the, the kind of male hero, if you like, is further down than her. There's no doubt about it. Jael, the other woman who's held up, is further down than her. There's no doubt. You can also see, I think, that gender is important by the words that she will use in a couple of verses' time in verse 9. She's about to go and see Barak, and Barak will respond not the best, not bad, but not the best, and she will say in verse 9 that because Barak has acted like this, the honour of the upcoming victory will not be his, as it would have been under normal circumstances, but it will be a woman's. So gender is certainly significant in this chapter. But as I said before, gender roles are not the main point of the passage, so I don't want to spend all, all the time here. But I will, I will give one word of caution from Deborah on this issue. Because gender issues, men and women, how we relate, different roles, should there be different roles, all that sort of thing continues to be a controversial subject in Christian circles. I think Deborah challenges rather than supports the extreme positions on both sides of the debate, if I can put it like that. So let me give one, one caution that I take from Deborah. What I mean is some people look at Deborah and will say, look, look what uh, Judges chapter 4 shows. It shows that women and men are the same. There should be no difference in roles determined by gender. Deborah was God, a God-appointed leader, a prophetess. She made judicial decisions over Israel. She was a key leader in Israel, perhaps the key leader over the people of God. Therefore... That should be the way it is. Now, I totally agree with everything that's being said about Deborah there. Any attempt to reduce the significance of Deborah's leadership role here is wrong. Any attempt to uh, try and diminish the positive way that she is portrayed and the way that she undertakes this role uh, is flawed and unfaithful to judges. But a caution. She's an exception to the rule. I can't think of another woman, you can come and correct me afterwards if you want, I can't think of another woman in Israel's history who has this God-appointed civic leadership role within Israel. There are four other uh, women prophetesses in the uh, Old Testament. So there's five of them in the Old Testament. One's a false prophet, but the other four are prophetesses. But none like Deborah. 
So we have to be careful when we're trying to think about these things as we should and, and as we include Deborah as we should not to claim everything for Deborah because we have to put alongside it other teachings in the Bible. Like what do we make in Ephesians of the, the male headship role in the, in the family, the, hus- the husband role that's there, a spiritual headship. Uh, what do we think of other parts of the scriptures that, that teach different things? So if you were thinking about Deborah, we have to be honest and, and say she seems to be an exception rather than the rule. But here's the thing to bear in mind for the other extreme, on the other side of the debate, for those who think that women can never, should never, all those sorts of things, Deborah did. And she did it appropriately, she was God-appointed, and she did it brilliantly. And you can't ignore that when you are wrestling with these issues and trying to think it through. That needs to be remembered and reflected on. So I think Deborah actually presents a a challenge to uh, both those who try to kind of take on the world's argument, the world's wisdom that gender is irrelevant, there's no differences at all, and those who try to ignore Deborah and minimise her and not include her in the debate and the discussion. There's a challenge to both there. Now, I realise that doesn't say more, but, but neither does judges, so we don't have to go into there this morning. But, but there's a good challenge there. Secondly, second question on her, though, is, is she the judge here? She's a judge here, there's no doubt about that. Part of her role is to oversee disputes going on within the Israelites. But the term judge, as I've said a few times in this series, is very specific in this book of Judges. And I would contend she's not the judge here. That's Barak. Now, there's a few reasons why I think it. And I, I point this out because you'll re- you can read a number of um, uh, books on the book of Judges and they'll name the 12 judges and they'll name Deborah. I wouldn't. I'm not against it. I wouldn't go, false teacher, how dare you, or anything like that. I can see why you'd think it's Deborah, but I think it's Barak. Deborah is clear all the way through it's Barak's role to raise the army, to lead the army, to do the battle. Now, it's Deborah's, Deborah's above Barak. She's the one speaking the, the Lord's word to Barak. But it's, it's, um, uh, it's Barak who's got to do it. And in the book of Judges, the judge is the one who wins the military battle. It's the one who does the deliverance in that way. But the other reason I think it's Barak is Hebrews 11. If you remember Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 in the the New Testament uh, gives a a roll call of faith from the Old Testament. It goes through a number of Old Testament luminaries, heroes of the faith, not perfect, they're, they're all a work in progress, but heroes of the faith. When it gets to the judges era, Barak is mentioned, Deborah isn't. Now, that's odd because Deborah's the, the, clearly the better person here. She's clearly the senior person here, but it's Barak who's mentioned. I think because Barak is the judge. We're supposed to see him in that way. But this is Deborah, and she's so good and so important in this, in this passage. So she then, we've now met her, she then goes to Barak and says to Barak what the instructions of the Lord are. Notice it's a command in verse 6. This is a a command, Barak, to you from God. You've got to get 10,000 men from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and then God will use you to overthrow Sisera, overthrow the oppression that the Israelites have been under for 20 years. And she says that God is going to lure Sisera with the 900 iron chariots and troops to the Kishon River, and then God will give Barak the victory. Now we see the hesitancy of Barak. And I think hesitancy is the right word because Barak's pretty good in this chapter on the whole, but here he's not good. There's a reluctance here which we're supposed to see as negative, a hesitancy here. He says, verse 8, if you go with me, Deborah, I'll go, 
but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Now remember, this is a command from God. This is a, a word of wisdom for me, for everyone here. When you get a command from God, don't say if. <laughs> it's not a great reply. Uh, if this happens, well, I might obey you, God. That's never going to be a great reply. And it's not here. God has promised he's going to hand Sisera over to Barak. But Barak doesn't seem to trust that. What he seems to trust is the physical presence of Deborah more than the word of God. Now, that's a principle in life that continues to be a problem today, right? When we continue to trust what we see with our eyes or we hear with our ears or we experience with our senses rather than the, the God's word, God's promises, that's what Barak does here. If you come with me, I'll go. If you don't, I won't. So Deborah replies, verse 9, Very well, I will go with you. But because of the way you're going about this, the honour will not be yours for the Lord will hand Sisera over to a woman. Now, some see the woman here uh, that will get the honour to be Deborah, and it could be. I don't think it is. I think it's Jael, and I'll, I'll show you why as we keep going. But this is Barak. This we've, Barak's entered into it, and he's going to do it. I want to point out, he's pretty good in the rest of the, the chapter. So there's a, a little hiccup here, a little hurdle, but we've all done this, right, where we haven't fully trusted God before we uh, go on and do the right thing. He goes on to do the right thing. Verse 10, he goes and summons uh, the, 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 ten, the thousands from the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 follow him. Think about that for a moment. Uh, look, people, we're going to go up against the 900 iron chariots. Who's with me? Uh, no one? He gets 10,000 people to follow him. Barak's good here. He gets them to follow him, and then the rest of his actions in the chapter are brilliant. He will lead God's people, even though he must have been nervous and worried and those sorts of things. But then suddenly in verse 11, we get told of another person in another place. We're introduced to someone called Heber the Kenite, and uh, then that's all. Uh, but we'll see why he's important in a few moments. Then in verse 12, there's another scene change. We're back with the baddie, Sisera. He's gathering his 900 chariots, positioning his troops at the Kishon River. But then we're, so it's like a movie, isn't it? You're seeing all these different scenes, but then we're back with Deborah and Barak. Verse 14, Deborah tells Barak, uh, this is the time, go. The Lord's already won the victory for you, Barak. And then the 10,000 Israelites and Barak go towards the river. Now, verses 15 to 16 just say that Sisera and his troops are defeated. And you kind of go, well, that's a bit anticlimactic. How, how did it happen? What, what went on? We know, we know that, uh, <clears throat> in fact, even here, Sisera abandons his chariot and he himself hoofs it on, on foot. And you can wonder why, what's gone on. But in chapter 5, we're told, again, we won't look it up yet, Alex, but um, in chapter 5, it talks about rain coming. It talks about the rivers uh, flooding. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination, does it, to work out that soft, wet ground and iron chariots is not the best combination. The Lord has miraculously brought rain, the one thing that's going to cause the chariots problems. He's won the battle for them. But from now on after, but the battle's not the key part, because verse 17, now the one who's abandoned his chariot and fled on foot, Sisera, he becomes the main character. And he flees to the tent of Jael, and we find out that Jael, this woman we haven't met before, is the wife of Heber the Kenite, and now it all makes sense why verse 11 was there. And we think, well, this might be good news for Sisera, because we're told that friendly relations exist between Sisera's boss, King Jabin, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. I don't know much about the Kenites. I keep thinking that they look like Ken from Toy Story. Don't worry. It won't help you visually, but... Anyway, Jael, 
goes out to visit uh, to, to meet um, uh, Sisera <clears throat> in verse 18, and she comes across, notice, as very welcoming. The words go out of their way to be hospitable, don't they? Come, my lord, come right in, don't be afraid. She puts a covering on him in the tent. He then asks for some water. She goes one better and gives him milk. It's all looking very good for Sisera. He asks her to stand guard for him in the doorway, but then he falls asleep exhausted, as you can imagine he would be. And then comes something very unexpected if you don't know the story. Jael, who's been very friendly up until this point, goes to work with the tent peg and the hammer. And like last week, we get the gruesome details, don't we? If you were here last week, we got the sword into the belly and the flab fitting over it and things like this. Here, we hear that the the peg didn't just go into the temple, but through it and into the ground. I mean, I don't need to hear that much. And um, what do we make of it? It's quite uncomfortable, isn't it? Jail, you might say, clearly didn't look at her WWJD bracelet before she did what she did. But I only say that as half a joke because that's, isn't that partly what makes it so uncomfortable? What would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't do this, would he? How are we supposed to read what Jael does here? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And the text doesn't really help us. It doesn't explain why she did it. It doesn't condemn her for doing it. It doesn't exonerate her for doing it. It just says she did it. But like last week when I talked about the, this part of the Bible is narrative, so it's just describing what happened, not prescribing, not telling us what to think or, or anything. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It doesn't here. And that's meant that some people give jail a hard time here because they, they point out how treacherous she's been, which she has, and deceitful, and she's done something awful, and they kind of say, well, this is terrible. But there's a problem with that. The problem with that is although chapter 4 is very coy about how to view what jail does here, Chapter 5 in the song is different. Chapter 5 in the song is very positive. There's no doubt. And remember who wrote this song and who's singing this song? The heroes, Deborah and Barak. Chapter 5, verse 1. Can we have a look how chapter 5, uh, in chapter 5, verse 24, Alex, how um, what she does here is viewed? Deborah and Barak sing, verse 24, most blessed of women be jailed the wife of Heba the Kenite, most blessed of all tent-dwelling women. I don't know how big a rap it is to be the most blessed of all tent-dwelling women, but they're obviously trying to praise her a bit. She is the ble- she's to be blessed, most blessed of all tent-dwelling women. It's seen positively what she does, and it glories in her action. Have a look at verse 26. Her hand reached for the tent peg, her right hand the workman's hammer. See, it even sounds like poetry now, doesn't it? She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. At her feet he sank, he fell, there he lay. At her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell, dead. I'd like the musicians to put that to music later on this morning. What she does here is seen positively. That's why I think Jael is the one that's given the honour in this battle. That's who Deborah is speaking of back in chapter 4 because when they sing of it, it's her who's to be blessed. It's her. Now, if you feel uncomfortable about this, I totally understand that. Me too. But let me say a couple of things on this. Remember, Sisera is a bad dude. He's evil. We don't cry in Return of the Jedi when Darth Vader throws the Emperor to his death. Why? Because the Emperor's a bad dude. 
so is Sisera. And we see that in the other thing in the song that's not in chapter 4. There's one more part at the end of the song that's not in chapter 4. And in the song they sing of Sisera's mother waiting for her son to return. He's gone out to the battle and her mother is said to be peering out the window waiting for her son to get home after the battle. Can we have verse 28 of chapter 5, Alex? So in verse 28, she's looking out the window and she says, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why is the clatter of his chariots delayed? And you might think, well, my heart's going to go out to Sisera even more and I'm going to think even more negatively of what Jael's done. But then have a look in verse 29 when she answers her own question. When Sisera's mum answers her own question, she concludes that the reason he's late is, are they not finding and dividing the spoils, a girl or two for each of the men? Literally, it says a womb or two for each of the men. Colourful garments as plunder for Sisera, colourful garments embroidered, highly embroidered garments for my neck. All this is plunder. Do you see what's being said there? This is a character reference from Sisera's mum. You might expect that to be positive, but it's not really, is it? Look at what she says. He's late because he's getting all the plunder from the people he slaughtered. And the plunder will include women to use and rape and clothes for me. That's what Sisera's mum says. This is a bad guy. This is evil. God has used jail to judge evil because God does judge evil. Very easy for us as privileged people who live in New Zealand right now, I've never had a day of cruel oppression in my life, to judge what it's like to live under a Stalin or a Pol Pot or to face that kind of evil. God judges evil. I'm not sure that we're supposed to see everything jail does here as positive. I think there are some parts that shock and we have question marks over, but there's also a rightness to what she does here, under the Lord's hand. Now, there's questions as to, well, when I said WWJD, what would Jesus... Will we be called to do that today as Christians? No. I wish we could go into this more, but we're under a kind of... Since Jesus is done and the primary judgment of God is taken by Jesus on the cross, as we respond to evil in the world now, how do we respond? By pointing people to Jesus. By pointing people to the place where we see the judgment of God and the grace and love of God most clearly in the cross. That's how we respond now. But it was different back then. And and not different in terms of what happened, just in, in the way it's manifested. Same principles. Evil will be judged, but we deal with it different. But there is a victory here, and I think Jael does the right thing and is honoured because of it. Anyway, the victory is had, a victory that both the historical and musical chapters attribute ultimately to the Lord. Not to Deborah, not to Barak, not to Jael, but to the Lord primarily. I've got to finish uh, because it's communion. We've seen lots in the chapter, so let me just leave you with three questions or challenges uh, to ponder over as you keep thinking about this chapter. One, are you on the Lord's side? Are you on the Lord's side? Or are you on the side of evil? Because those are the two sides in this world. And I know that makes it seem simplistic and black and white, but in the end it is that. Are we on the Lord's side? This is a question that we'll be faced with and confronted with all the way through the book of Judges. But it's pretty stark here. Are we on the Lord's side? If we know we're not, we can cry out to him like the Israelites did. We can cry out to him. That's the privilege that we have. That's the, um, that's the opportunity that we have. But are you on the Lord's side? That's the first question. Second question. Are you making a stand for the Lord? I think that's what these two chapters are actually primarily about. 
This is the particular issue of this part of Judges. See, Deborah makes a wonderful stand for the Lord here. The tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun make a wonderful stand for the Lord here. But this was the other part of chapter 5 I didn't go into. In chapter 5 we see other tribes of Israel who didn't make that stand, who didn't go with Barak and the armies to take on Sisera and those troops. Can we just have a look at verse, chapter 5, verse 15, Alex? Uh, I'm just going to use Reuben, the tribe of Reuben, as an example here. Because Reuben's called out. A few of them are called out in chapter 5, but Reuben's called out. Verse 15. This is the song. They're singing this, remember? In the districts of Reuben there was much searching of hearts. Why did you stay amongst the campfires to hear the whistling of the flocks? In the districts of Reuben there was much searching of hearts. Do you, do you get what's being said there? The tribe of Reuben considered going to serve the Lord in this way, but they voted no. They considered it. I like to think that they formed some committees to look into it, to do a, maybe a SWOT analysis on what are the strengths of this particular course of action and what are the weaknesses of this course. How much will it cost and how much will it benefit? And on pondering it, Lord, no, we'll, will we know, thank you. They don't make a stand to stand with the Lord and his people. In the face of opposition, in the face of suffering, in the face of public opinion, in the face of difficulties of life, they make a choice not to stand with the Lord and his people. They're not the only ones. I'm, I've kind of hammered the tribe of Reuben, but Gilead doesn't. Dan doesn't. Even Barak falters, doesn't he? I will go if you come with me, but... Now he goes, and I'm not trying to ham, but even he's in danger not of. One, that's an issue in, this, in these chapters. Uh, beginning of chapter 5, Alex, one of the repeated refrains in the song comes in verse 2 and then verse 9. Have a look at verse 2. When the princes in Israel take the lead and the people willingly offer themselves, praise the Lord. And it says a similar thing in verse 9. My heart is with Israel's princes and the willing volunteers among the people, praise the Lord. What he's saying here is the Lord is praised when God's lead, the leaders of God's people and the volunteers do stand by the Lord and serve him. In the face of struggle, difficulty, overwhelming odds, against public opinion, against opposition, will we stand with the Lord? That's the second question I want us to be challenged by this morning. Third question, very quickly, are you thankful for Jesus? I've said before one of the dangers of reading the book of Judges is we look at the judges and think we're the judge. We're not the judge, we're the Israelites. <laughs> we're, the, we're the people of God who keep making mistakes and we learn from the Israelites. The judges are a picture of Jesus. Jesus is the one compared and contrasted with the judges. When you look at the judges in this book, you give thanks even more deeply for Jesus. Barak wouldn't go unless Deborah went with him. You and I have a saviour who was all alone the night before he died and who still took the father's cup. Barak needed permission and he needed a prod and persuasion Jesus walked all the way to Golgotha to take the cross for you and I of his own volition. He laid his own life down for you and I. We have a judge, unlike Barak, unlike Deborah, unlike, ja unlike any of them, who is perfect and who we can point others to so that they too can be on the Lord's side and stand with him and for him. So three questions. Are you on God's side? Are you making a stand for him? Are you thankful for your judge, Jesus? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I'm so sorry that we've kind of raced through that at one level because there's so much in these two chapters, but we're thankful for that that you've revealed to us this morning. We pray that we would be on your side. 
We pray that we would stand with you and for you. Thank you that we have the privilege of doing that because we have the privilege of following the true judge, our wonderful king, the one who gave his own life, who was the unusual saviour using an unexpected method of salvation. And we pray that we would keep pointing to a world that needs him so desperately to the one hope they have, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.